I want to live in that world, you know? I want to live in that world where these giant space sea turtle dudes are selling me like tchotchkes and like bullshit. Like that sounds lovely. Welcome to The Rhetorizer, a show about books. With John, Kevin, and Roxanne. This week, we're taking a break from talking about Philip K. Dick. Today's book is The Lathe of Heaven, by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, welcome to The Rhetorizer, everybody. Should we get down to business, right? Yeah. Yeah, let's get down to business. <laughs> Ew, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Get, Hello, that's, John. That's how I get my persona down. Um, okay, are we starting? We're starting, yes. I'm Kevin. I'm Kevin Sexton. Oh, okay. Um, All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Rhetorizer, everybody. Uh, this is John with an H. Joy, uh, joining me in this podcast is uh, Kevin Sexton and uh, Roxanne Hudon. Yeah. Roxanne Hudon, um, she used someone else's pharmacy card, so she's been asked to voluntarily appear repeatedly on this podcast as punishment. Yeah, exactly. I can't get out. Welcome back, Roxanne. We love having Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. You're wonderful. Thanks, guys. Yeah. I'm better. Would you say I'm better than Jacob? Some. So Jacob's. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, listeners should know that Jacob's still gone. And uh, some people say that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And they're wrong. <laughs> I knew what you were doing and I was like, don't laugh at his stupid joke, but I'm just too much of a fan, number one fan, I guess. Okay, so today um, we're actually doing our first non-Philip K. Dick book on this podcast for a couple of reasons. I think largely because um, since we read Now Wait for Last Year, I'm, I was like, I need a break from this guy. There's a lot of his books that are very similar and I think there's still more to explore, but uh, want to do something different. And then Roxanne came on the podcast and she's like, why are the women in these books all so horribly written? And we said, let's try something different. Let's do a yeah. Ursula okay. Let's do a woman. Le Guin. Yeah, yeah. A, a woman who is also who is kind of dick adjacent. Uh, so that's why we picked The Lathe of Heaven, which is this Ursula K. Le Guin book that kind of has a lot of similar themes to Philip K. Dick stuff. In summary, Kevin's woke politics have uh, forced us to move away from Philip K. Dick. Um, I'm sorry, it's it's Roxanne's woke politics. Yeah. I'm going to throw Roxanne under the bus for this one. Yeah, well, I don't I don't know if this uh, Le Guin person is really, like, does she have any other qualifications other than being a woman to be featured <laughs> on this podcast? No, that's it. <laughs> that's how Kevin and We're going to switch it up and try a woman today. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin's like it's, uh, Roxanne was on the podcast uh, a few episodes ago and she revealed to me that women write novels as well this is news to me so I figured why don't we try one of them out I think we did mention like a few podcasts well a few as if I've been on so many but didn't we mention that she went, she went to high school with him yeah, they went to high school together in Berkeley, um, but they never met each other, but they gra they graduated the same year. And then she she's actually said since that she's talked to a bunch of other people from high school and nobody remembers Philip K. Dick. And he's also like, his name is in the yearbook, but his picture's not there. And just like, no, it's, it's like, there's no trace of his existence. And s later on, they became, uh, they were mutual admirers and they've like exchanged letters and spoken on the phone, but she never met him. So she's just like this, he's like this weird ghostly figure in Ursula K. Le Guin's life. Yeah, but they, they express a lot of admiration for each other, even though they did disagree on some things, like notably like Le Guin criticized his, his uh, like Roxanne pointed out in our, you know, uh, one of our last episodes that 
she criticized him for his depictions of women. Um, but what else is interesting too is like, it's it's amazing that they grew up in the same place and went to the same high school. But just like as writers, they were contemporaries in the same medium uh, and the same genre, but they approached it so such different ways, right? Like. Uh, Phil K. Dick is really this, like, you know, as we mentioned many times, like this sort of pulpy writer, you know, just churning things out. And Le Guin, while she had like a really, you know, also like huge uh, oeuvre, was very much a different kind of writer. Like she's more polished. Uh, she's more like fleshed out ideas. And she's also, I don't want to say mainstream success. I want to say like critical success, right? Yeah, and, she won uh, She won weight, a ton of awards. Like eight Yeah, but Ugos. I didn't want to say mainstream success as if like, uh, I didn't want to say it as like as if it was like a negative. I mean, like she's an amazing writer. Like she's yeah. really incredible. Um, yeah, I would kind of say that Philip K. Dick had more mainstream success. No, only like the, oh, the film adaptations. I meant in like literature. Yeah, yeah that that happened after he died. All the film adaptations and stuff. But yeah, I guess. He, but I guess when you say ma- mainstream, I imagine like more known, and I would fair think enough. Like more fair like, enough. You know. M- m- I was gonna say Mr. Madame Tout Le Monde, but I'm gonna translate that to Mr. <laughs> Madame. Everybody <laughs> know who Philip K. Dick is because they've seen like whatever Minority Report. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I meant more like liter like in 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 like the sphere of literature. Like she was definitely a bigger success. She was just far more celebrated as a writer for sure. Like yeah. like like dozens of awards. You know, like I said, eight Hugo, six Nebulas, twenty four Locus Awards. She was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize. Like she was like she was a serious writer, and not only sci-fi. She she did Earthsea. She did like fantasy stuff. She did children's lit- literature, literary criticism, but also was like similarly super prolific like him, right? Yes, like over twenty novels, like a hundred, over a hundred short stories. Though certainly published. not powered by amphetamines, like he was. You know? <laughs> Are you sure no. about that? No, I'm not sure about that, but um, I, I don't know. I don't actually know too much about her biography. I did a little bit of reading for this episode because it was interesting. Yeah. But yeah, so it's 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 equally fascinating that they grew up in the exact same place, like, <laughs> and like we're probably in the same room together, like the same English class in high school. Like, uh, actually, we were talking to Jacob about this, you know, dealer dearly departed Jacob, and he's like, it's incredible that like. Two of sci-fi's greatest writers were in the same like literature class, probably, and did not acknowledge each other's presence. You know, like that's that's that is, that is amazing. Like that that sounds like something out of a movie. I can imagine them both in like math class, just like looking out the window and imagining whatever strange beings and aliens and things. I I, ima- I imagine more like Philip K. Dick like doodling and Ursula K. Le Guin like actually doing her homework and being like intellectually absorbed in like what she was doing. Yeah. Philip K. Dick just drawing a third breast on every woman in the book. It's <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, he's just, he's just drawing triple titted women all through the margins of his all his notebooks. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really been interesting. So, and I think we we chose this book specifically because it's been compared to to Philip K. Dick. Um, among her well, other, books. it's not her biggest one. No, well, Ursula K. Le, Le Guin said that this was like. She's she's gone to on record to say that she was inspired by Philip K. Dick. Like this she is kind of like her, her Philip K. Dick story. And what's interesting too is having just read Doctor Blood Money. Doctor Blood Money starts with like a guy going to therapy who believes that his actions are controlling the entire universe. This book is about a guy who thinks his dreams are changing the course of the universe. I have a question for you guys, actually, especially. Well, I don't know, Kevin, if you read as much sci-fi as Jonathan, but is no. therapy huge in sci-fi? Uh, I mean, no, like, but like the subconscious is often. 
Um, and I would say, I, I think this is more of like a 60s, 70s thing. But I, I, would, I wouldn't say it's, uh, I don't know, like a, I wouldn't consider it like a staple of sci-fi, no. But that's a, that's a good question. Apparently she was kind of obsessed with therapy, though. And like You're Jungian welcome. therapy was kind of a big thing in her work. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Jungian influence on like a lot of literature of the period is, is huge, right? You know, it's mm. all about like dreams and, and, you know, myths and archetypes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So let's uh, introduce this book, The Lathe of Heaven. Um, so she's already a big deal at this point. It comes out in 1971, but she's already had like a couple of huge successes with Left Hand of Darkness and with her first Earthsea book, serialized in Amazing Stories. And then she publishes it. It's nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula, which are two huge sci-fi awards. It won a Locus Award. It's been adapted into two movies. So it's like it's a pretty big book in her catalog. Two, two, two like straight to DVD movies and PBS. You know, it's not, it's not like, like a major theatrical release. Yeah, TV movie. Yeah, come on. But I did hear that, uh, well, it was Ursula K. Le Guin saying it, that people were calling in PBS to ask where they could watch it. So Yeah, so yeah, and we get to that later. But yeah, they actually when it because of rights, they had to basically take it off the air. But then people, the fans were like going so nuts for it that they had, they like had to like renegotiate all these rights and stuff to get this movie the lathe um, onto DVD. Lathe, the lathe heads. heads, yeah. You were waiting to say that one, weren't you? I wrote it down before the show. <laughs> Did <Yeah>. you actually? <laughs> I never reveal my secrets. <laughs> Who would like to set up the premise for this? Uh, you mean do the two minute summary? Go for it. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I did last time and you did it. Roxanne, I think it's time. Oh, I don't. Uh, I don't trust myself. The worse it is, the better it is, I think. <laughs> Okay, so, I, so let I that can, let, let that motivate you. I, I, I mean, I think this premise is pretty simple, so I'm gonna keep it really simple, and then we can go into details after. Yeah, just do a two minute summary, and then as is tradition, we'll all disagree with it, or just talk over me. Uh, no, we can't. I'm, I we're not allowed to speak. I I've been instructed I'm not allowed to speak through the two minutes. <laughs> this is the only two minutes in the podcast when John is not talking. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to go off the top of my head and not even look at my notes. If if, if you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. You don't have to. It's fine. I'll try. I'll try. I'll try. Yes. yes okay, yes. I've got my timer up on the screen. Three, two, one, go. So in the future, Portland, which is like all sci-fi, I guess, um, being like ruined by global warming. Um, there's a man named George Orr who gets caught by I think the police. I forget who for using his neighbor's pharmacy card and getting more drugs than he's meant to. And he explains his reasoning. I think I'm going faster than I should. But anyway, he explains his reasoning as being that he's trying, he's taking the drugs to stop his dreams because he thinks his dreams are making things actually happen. Um, so they sentence him to voluntary therapy treatment where he meets Dr. William Haber, who doesn't really believe what this guy is saying, uh, puts him under hypnosis and tell him, tells him to dream of a horse. And when George Orr comes to there's actually like the doctor's mural of, that was of Mount Hood turned into one of a horse um, so the doctor kind of realizes that what he said was true so he starts using him to make all these things happen in the world but every time it's not quite what the doctor wanted um, so he makes like he wants to reduce overpopulation he makes like six billion people disappear from the world uh, he keeps like kind of giving himself promotions to his work uh, 
I'm trying to think of all the dreams, but I'm just going to, anyway, the world gets worse basically because at the end um, he wishes for the, for war to stop. But how, how, what George or dreams of is like um, the only way that earth can stop, how, that humans can stop fighting with each other is if they're fighting aliens. And then he tries to fix that with another dream. Am I making sense? Anyway, I'm going to keep going. Uh, he tries to fix that with another dream where finally the aliens don't want to fight them, but now they live with them on planet Earth. Um, and they're just these kind of strange beings. Um, and George Orr decides that he doesn't want to be used anymore for his dreams. So he tells the doctor. Time's who then up. All right, time is <laughs> okay, up. I almost made it. <laughs> That's good. You got all you got all the important you know, stuff. You know, you know, you know, you know what you you did a good job, but you know what your mistake was. Twenty three seconds in, you said, "I think I'm going too fast." No, no. <laughs> I wasn't. No. no, you got to go as fast as you fucking can. I was, I was trying to describe like the global warming things, and I was like, oh, "I shouldn't even mention global warming." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Over... Why did I mention global warming? <laughs> anyway, it's always global warming. That was a good summary, though. Uh, and then, uh, and then, uh, what you left out is near the end. Uh, George Orr dreams his own powers away under the guidance of Doctor Haber, and then Doctor Haber is able to use his uh, device, the Augmenter, to recreate George Orr's um, effective dream powers in himself. And then, when he goes to dream to change the world, you know, sort of gaining this like. Pet mastery he has actually an effective nightmare and he shatters reality essentially um a little bit and but life still goes on and um you know then george or um just sort of lives in that world and dr haber goes to a mental institute um yeah. and we'll talk about it there's also yeah. a, a third main character who we left out who's uh heather lalash who is a lawyer who's like a very competent biracial lawyer um whose parents were like civil rights activists um and yeah, yeah. she comes in at first to like uh, monitor and see if this guy's messing with George Orr. And then they become friends and they get a complicated, complicated like lovers in some realities and not others. And that, that becomes a whole other thing. Yeah. I had to like choose between her and the aliens. <laughs> the I, aliens? Was, I was <laughs> straight to the aliens. The, I was Alda, the Alderbaranians. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. So, can we start with the starting of this novel? Yeah, we should start with the starting of this novel. How does this novel start, Kevin? This novel starts with a jellyfish floating around in the water. And then there's some like, what is it? Like tectonic plate shifting or something like that? The continents shift and the jellyfish gets expelled out of the water and lands on land and dries up. Actually, it starts with an introduction written by, my version starts with an introduction written by another uh, writer. Okay, I was gonna get. I was gonna go straight to the jellyfish. <laughs> no, I, was just, I was just fucking with you. Actually, starts with a, a quote uh, from Chuang Tse, okay. uh, and then moves on to the uh, you know the the metaphor about the jellyfish. But they're both related. I'm just being a pet and asshole. Um, yeah, typical. Yeah. This is why I wanted to get away from Philip K. Dick. I think Philip K. Dick's good, but I'm like, I want a writer who's actually like trying different stuff. Um, oh and I, then I opened this book, and she's talking about jellyfish, and I don't know why. And I was like, perfect. This is what I needed. Yeah, in like a really beautiful way, and I was like, oh, like I'm, I missed, I missed you, Ursula. But then I, f I felt like her style kind of switched, and I don't know if it's because I had in my head that this was like a, like her version of a Philip K. Dick book. So I was a, like, when, because I think, and I'm sure Jonathan will correct me, but the first perspective we get is, isn't it Dr. William? H no, it's George Orr. But then, like really quickly, we have William Haber, right? No, the first perspective we have, I mean, it's it's not, 
it's not like a first person novel or anything, but the first no. like interior sort of uh, like glimpse we have is, is George Orr. But yeah, uh, this jellyfish motif actually returns. Uh, sorry, I, I'm kind of I'm moving. Sorry, I'm going. So uh, yeah, that's that George Orr is the first uh, 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 focal character. Yeah, yeah. So the jellyfish, I was actually reading about this because I was trying to think about this jellyfish thing and it, it quickly moves on and becomes, yeah, like you were saying, a very Philip K. Dickish um, story about two people, essentially, interactions in this crazy sci-fi world. Um, so apparently the jellyfish thing is uh, she was obsessed with Taoism and she was like, her dad was an anthropologist, her parents were both anthropologists, but she had read the, the Tao Te Ching from like her dad's copy and she was obsessed with it. And this jellyfish thing is supposed to be kind of about the the order of the universe. So it's like there's the water, which is the Tao, the way, and then there's the jellyfish, which is just like, um, uh, I wrote this down, now I'm forgetting. Wu Wei, which means effortless action. The jellyfish represents effortless action in the world. So it's just like the jellyfish just like it is in the water and it swirls with the waves and it gets, you know. I, I, uh, I, I, I was also really struck by, by this image. I really, I really loved it. Um, I, I thought I, I, it was really incredible. And it's a recurring motif. Uh, it comes up again sort of near the end. Like I think Haber actually like calls, uh, he like almost insultingly when he is insulting or which he does frequently, he calls like or like a jellyfish. Right. Like he's spineless. Right. Cause he's supposed to, he's like weak and spineless and not manly. Like that's the whole thing. About it's it's not just, just that though. He doesn't, it's, it's, he doesn't it's take just, charge of his life. He's it's just, not yet. He's, he's getting moved around by the yeah. currents. And this, yeah, this, yeah. this is, is, is likened to the Tao and like sort of like Eastern sort of mysticism and philosophy, which is maybe like a little bit of orient or sort of Orientalism, um, on Le Guin's part. But, uh, I, I still I still enjoyed it like as a as a as a sort of symbolic like metaphor for the book because the jellyfish is uh or and, and the whole point of the jellyfish is that the jellyfish in this description, I don't I don't you know, biologists, you know, fucking email the show, whatever, correct us. Talk about like <laughs> biologists uh, get, aren't listening. Talk about like this. Portuguese man of wars who have their like you own system that. of propul- propulsion or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'm biologists. Not- yeah, but, but but the idea, but the idea is that the jellyfish is is this powerful creature that, um, and I and I'm I'm taking part of this out of a, a Bill Moyer interview that I like a ten minute Bill Moyer interview I saw on YouTube with her. But it is it's itself um, moved by the currents of the ocean. It doesn't move itself, but it's still this very sort of simple yet complicated biological creature that hasn't changed a lot over like you know, uh, thousands of thousands of years of, of evolution, but is still in itself very effective, despite the fact that it actually does not exert any like action or effect onto the world. This is Le Guin's, you know, perception of it. Um, mm. And also, you know, jellyfish, and this is sort of my reading uh, as someone who's like been stung by jellyfish, is that like, um, they're kind of like also powerful, they're dangerous, but it's just this, this kind of power they're waiting for their sort of prey to come to them. And, and that's supposed to be or, and in the power dynamics of this book, it's constantly shifting. Like the book describes or like at first is like sort of very weak. Uh, people call him like a comic feminine. And then also it flips. And he's actually quite strong. And it's, it's, there's not a lot of characters in this book. There's essentially three and a few uh, aliens sprinkled through. But it's really it's really the juxtaposition and the conflict between like Haber, who's this like kind of like power hungry and power sort of gone bad. And um Maybe bad's the wrong word. And 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 or who's just like, is this sort of Dow? He's almost like, you know, the dude, right? Uh, but he's just like he's he's just abiding, you know, he's sort of going through things, but he's also very troubled. Um but yeah, uh I was I was very excited by this uh jellyfish uh motif. Um, yeah, you clearly love j- jellyfish. 
Um, but in that in that interview that I also watched, Ur Ursula K. Le Guin. I feel like I just want to say Ursula, but maybe I don't. You know, we don't roll like that. But I'm just well. I just go think of the. It. I just think of the witch from uh, Little Mermaid when you say. Or, Ursula. Oh right. So I'm gonna say Ursula K. Ursula K. Compares the jellyfish to George Orr. Right. Uh, Roxanne, I want to respond. You want to say fuck that shit? We're gonna call her Ursula. Okay, she Ursula. rules, and we're not gonna let Ursula. the Little Mermaid, which is a bullshit movie, anyways, destroy this uh, amazing writer's name. Yeah. And I, um, I mean, is it because she she described herself? She was a Taoist, and she described this as a Taoist book. So, is this still kind of like a proof? Because I know you said there's a little bit of Orientalism, but would you still think this is like a appropriating? Even if she herself like considered herself okay, so I'm not I'm I'm certainly not an expert. Uh, like I said in our group chat, like I read like the Tao Te Ching like once in Sejep. Uh, I'm not like particularly interested in that like version of philosophy. But I will point out uh, one fact is that the the title of this book is actually from a mistranslation. So it is it, it does feel like a bit to me that I I I'm just I'm just wary of it. I guess I'm cautious of it of being some sort of like appropriation. Um, I don't think it's like mean spirited or anything. And I think in terms of the book, though, she's setting up as this kind of like way of being of like sort of accepting the limits of your knowledge and accepting that you uh, sort of like you can't and maybe it's not even desirable to, you know, control or understand every facet of reality. You know, like I think I think that's 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 just one of the tensions of the book. Right. Yeah. And, and you said they start or Kevin, but like they start, to, you know, the first times we meet George or he does seem kind of like this weak, useless guy. And I think maybe more that's why I thought, oh no, this is gonna be another sci-fi novel where it's this kind of like weak clerk who kind of, you know, something happens to him and he rolls with the punches and like, you, you know, but he's not that guy. But like when, when the book starts, you kind of think he's going to be, like it It reminded me of reading like the Total Recall short story, like that kind of like- Yeah. Meek, yeah you know clerk in a sci-fi world and he meets these other bad guys and then you know he's just kind of useless but i think you touched on something though i think that was intentional in a way like it is really like that kind of like philip like pkd or sci-fi like typical protagonist like i think i think it is like i think he's supposed to be someone that you know sort of like uh you know uh shy or introverted men could like you know, to, to, can can identify with, but it's 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 it's, it's his descriptions are, are 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 very interesting because we see him described through the eyes of many people, mostly Haber, who who just flat out looks at him through contempt, like he like just and even even Heather Lalash when she first meets him, she describes him as fe as feminine, and that's coded as negative in that description. But then later on, she sort of sees him then instead she calls him like an uncarved piece of wood. And it's this idea that he has this like possibility. And then everyone relates that he has a strength that I think the book ultimately ends that shows that there is a strength to or and his his strength is that he he doesn't want to use these powers. Like okay, so I, I feel like we're we're getting kind of heavy, but 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 so George George R can change reality through his dreams. <laughs> yeah, can, we so up, can, 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 we, can we just set up I, I just want to talk about the actual reality that the book starts in which I think is interesting so the reality is he actually lives in Vancouver and he like commutes to Portland to go to these therapy sessions because it's just like the world is so crazily overpopulated that people have to like you know are living in these tiny cramped apartments and there's like they can't eat uh it's super polluted but it's raining all the time in the U.S. which I think is funny because actually the opposite problem is happening right now um 
But well, actually, you know, the U.S. is literally raining all the time right now, like the West Coast. Like, yeah, that's the true. West it is Coast, raining yeah. a lot right now. Yeah. But the, 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 the more, more pressing problem is for a long time it was not, and there was a, a very serious risk of drought. But the funny thing is she pegs the world population at 7 billion. Which, which is, is the about, population right now. Yeah, which is like that double, was, was double very, what it was in 1971. 1971, it was like around 3.8 billion. And she was like imagining so like... so uncomfortable to read <laughs> that. Like, <laughs> well, it was funny because she's just like, she's like, if our world population was double, like this is the world it would be. Yeah. Um, and like you like, have to like commute from a city in another country to get to work. And no, like, that's Vancouver, Washington, dude. It's not Vancouver, Canada. Really? Yeah, there's a Vancouver in... in, 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 in the west coast of the u.s in, in, in Washington. Uh, no, I, I, I was thinking of canada too. Oh, it was a lot canada. funnier no, it was a lot no... funnier if i thought he was commuting from the city like two hours away no 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 one no one gives a shit about canada it <laughs> <laughs> was a good it was a good bit though like it's like you know if you're like living in it'd be like you know you're you're, you're living in montreal and taking the train to ottawa every day to go to work which some people do some people um, do yeah but there is no other options okay that's funny that's interesting, um, um, but but it, but if you do want to talk about transport, there is a lot of anti-car sentiment in this book, which I loved. Go yeah, because the whole of Portland, you can't. You, I think there's no cars, right? She says. So okay, so George Orr can change reality with his dreams. So yeah. we actually go through several like dystopias slash utopias in this book, and in one of the early ones is we in a future in Portland that is post-car. There are no more cars. Everything's public transport. And there's actually a scene where they go to a lawyer's office that is, they've repurposed an old parking garage. And they actually talk about the the, the treads oh, yeah. and the tires being like uh, dinosaurs' footprints, which uh, as someone who's like very anti-car myself, um, despite, you know, that we, we own one, um, it's really fun. It was really nice. I really like that. Um, yeah, because they talk about the, how there was this period in history where basically like the majority of Portland was just gigantic parking garages. Yeah, so her sense of the future, that 7 billion people, and this is, um, so again, we go through several dystopias slash utopias in this world, different like planets that are facing different crises. And one sort of version of Earth that we go through is one that's overpopulated. And Ursula's uh, conception of this is that the only solution is to have like really good public transport and like really dense cities. Mm. And I was like, oh, it's a good, it's a good thing you're dead, Ursula, because right now our population is well over 7 billion. And in North America, we do not have that kind of solution, <laughs> like, at all. We just have more cars and worse public transport. I mean, she lived to see it. She only died in 2018. <laughs> it's five yeah. years ago. She didn't see uh, our life-changing, uh, you know, the crash, the pandemic, right? I think there was a scene in the book where I actually left a note, and the note just said COVID. <laughs> but it was, like, the whole part where she's this, when she des she's describing the plague, when um, Haber makes um, George or dream about overpopulation, reducing it, and his dream creates a plague. Yeah, yeah, because he's basically his one of his first big effective dreams, right? The doctor like suggests, gives him suggestions. He's like a dream specialist, and he gives him suggestions to try to make him dream certain things, which then make reality come true. So there's the before yeah. that so one. He says, I don't know. If, oh, go I ahead. don't know if you want to go go through the dreams, but before that one, there. They're not, I mean, he keeps promoting himself to better offices, I guess. It stops raining. There's also a dream about how he knows JFK. Like he uses yeah, this guy yeah. to make himself friends with the president. Oh, and he also uses it to like invent an institute of dreams, right? Or like onorology. Onorology. It's the yeah. science of dreams. I, I, I do want to talk about the sort of, um, as I do, I do think when I read a book, like I do, I, I do think of things like sequentially. 
but it's 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 interesting how it begins that George is really troubled by his power to like change reality of dreams. He doesn't he doesn't want to do it. He wants to like forsake this power. And he goes to see Dr. Haber. And Dr. Haber has like several machines and stuff like that. He's kind of like a pretty like two-bit like psychologist. Like he's kind of like a, a government like uh, employed psychologist or therapist. Uh, I don't even know the difference between the two, honestly. Do you guys know the difference? Whatever, I don't give a fuck. Um, <laughs> and, um, but he's he's genial. He's like confident. He's like charismatic in a way. But it's really a sort of like, he's not really interested in fake way. He doesn't believe George Orr's reasoning for being addicted to drugs and taking these drugs to suppress his dream that he can control reality because it's like a ridiculous proposition. And then like, there's a kind of a point in the book where you don't know if Haber knows, right? Because Haber sees him regularly and like George Orr suspects that Haber knows, but you don't know. And like Haber's sort of like learning how to use. Uh, I feel like, you know, I feel like, you know, the second he, he notices his, the, with the first dream that he notices that his mural changed from. But he Mount doesn't admit Hood it. And it's not explicit. And Orr is like, I suspect he must know because he's like at the center of it. So you could, because the proximity to Orr dreaming means like you're kind of spared some of the reality changing effects. And what happens when Orr dreams is like, it actually rewrites reality, but Orr remembers everything. And he's kind of living this like fractured experience. Like he remembers the different histories and stuff like that. And like actually it confuses him. But if you're within proximity, you can sort of see, but it's not really clear. I think, I mean, I guess you, you think it's clear, but it's not really clear where sort of Haber figures it out. And at some point Haber takes over and is actually controlling the way that, uh, George Orr dreams and he's yeah. doing it to fix the world's problems and Orr can't stop going because it's like he legally has to be there for no. his voluntary treatment it's it's partly that but he actually explains it he's he says he needs to go and I marked the passage he needs to go because he needs he is George Orr is terrified of dreaming uh by himself like uncontrollably um because he knows it's dangerous and so he goes to see uh, Dr. Haber for the anti-dream uh, medications that Haber gives him. And also because he thinks that having Haber control the dreams, even if he thinks that Haber is abusing the power, is better than having the uncontrolled dreams. And I think the book ultimately vindicates that decision by Orr. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because it's kind of a questionable decision. I like it's, uh, I, I, can find, I can find the passage. I, I, I marked it. But I think, like, while you're looking for it, that, well, to me, it was obvious that Haber kind of knows, but it's just not admitting it because all he's in all, like, all the dreams are kind of also benefiting him. Yes. It's clear that he's using them for some self-gain. So here, here's, here's a, a line that says, Haber had an effective instrument of coercion, the dream-suppressing drugs, which Orr could obtain only on his prescription. Therefore, he must cooperate with Haber. He was caught, rat in a trap. Or even thinks to himself, Haber's, at this point, at this point, obviously, I think he changes his opinion a little bit, but he thinks that Haber's not a mad scientist. He's pretty sane. And Or kind of is like, if I get sort of a bad feeling about this, I should trust this guy to control my dreams rather than me controlling them. And later on, we find out sort of like why this is. Um, because uh, the world was destroyed by like a nuclear holocaust, basically. And Or like dreams it away and saves it. But also, like, he, he, he feels guilty about this. Like, he feels guilty about rewriting reality, right? But the question I wanted to ask you guys is, if you had this power to rewrite the world with your dreams, knowing that's, like, kind of difficult to control, 
And then you're in this relationship with this like psychologist who is kind of abusing the power, let's say. I mean, mm -hmm. it's up to open to interpretation. Like, what would no, you do? It becomes very clear by the end of the novel that he's abusing the power. I, I think it's complicated, but what would you do? What would you do if you had this, this dream power? Uh, would, it, <laughs> would it have to be based in reality or could it be like fantastical? What do you mean by that, based in reality? Well, like... I mean, I like, make... as it's described in the book. Oh, okay, so it would have to be based... Like, I couldn't make any, like... There are no hobbits. Of course you can. He dreamed aliens into existence. Yeah, he That's did. That's true. That's true. But aliens exist, Kevin. That's but you can't. Difference. But you can't do that because you don't voluntarily go to sleep and make yourself dream of hobbits. Right? But maybe I, I I fall asleep watching Lord of the Rings and I wake up and it's like you just, just you just every night you just put on Lord of the Rings hoping that one day you're going to dream about hobbits and there's going to be hobbits there in the morning. I mean, hi hypothetically, hypothetically. <laughs> so that's what Roxanne does. <laughs> So, so I just yeah. imagine I just imagine Roxanne asleep on the couch with like all three extended versions just playing on repeat, and then yeah. she's like, "I'm just gonna dream a world where like we all live in Hobbiton," and then she like wakes up in Mordor with her hairy feet. Oh no, in Mordor, yeah, like just at the cusp of Mount Doom. Oh no, <laughs> I wanted to dream of the Shire, and I'm, here I am at the base of the spires of Minas Tirith with Mordor invading. Yeah, I think I'm getting like less, like I have less imagination with age and probably my first like instinct would just be like to dream of a lot of money. I know that's boring, but like, you know what? I'll figure out what to do with that. You're Haber, basically, Roxanne. You're Haber. Yeah, basically. You're thinking about how like, you can use it instrumentally, but or saying like, actually, you don't understand. Like this dream logic is like very difficult to understand and control. Haber is trying to use or to, to solve his problems. And one of the problems, uh, uh, solve Earth's problems. Like Haber thinks of himself as very benevolent, right? He's like, I'm going to save man. So he's like, I want you to dream up peace on Earth. And then so, um, uh, or does like the Watchmen, you know, like Alan Moore's Watchmen. And is like, okay, aliens are invading. Therefore, Earth must unite against these aliens. <laughs> and it's like, that ends as unintended consequences. But it's not like he just dreamed like, you know, everyone like throw down their weapons and like start hugging each other. You know, peace on earth. It's like a, it's, a, it's a monkey. It's a monkey's paw, right? It's a monkey. It's a classic monkey's paw, like cliche. You don't get, exactly get what you wish for. Although in, in a way, it is super logical in like a, a very literal sense, where it's almost like computer programming. It's like, well, you said the humans would not be fighting each other, therefore the humans are fighting somebody else. It's like an evil <laughs> said, genie, right? It's, it's like an evil genie. You're saying that I would wake up with a lot of money, but I would be like someone evil, like Elon Musk. Yeah, you'd wake up as Elon Musk, and you'd be in charge of Twitter, and you, and you just made a very frivolous purchase of a very shitty social media company <laughs> that has never once turned a profit in its whole fucking like <laughs> like lifetime, and now you're suddenly in charge of it, and you are you you have to follow through with every fucking dumb impulse idea that you come up with. <laughs> But I have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, but then you have to marry a Concordia uh, fine arts grad who makes electro music. <laughs> and yeah. you have to have two children with her. And both of them have inscrutable names. <laughs> so I'm kind of staying true to my roots in some ways, you know? <laughs> some ways. <laughs> so here's a question. Do you think this book is satirizing uh, like psychotherapy? No. You don't no. think so? Cause it's satirizing? Just like I don't yeah. think maybe critiquing, but there's no nothing funny about it. I don't think it's well, funny. Well, there kind of is. Early on, you've got like the, the scene of Orr who's talking about his aunt, who's always coming on to him as a joke. The book says, The insistent purposiveness of the late 20th century had produced fully as much sex guilt and sex fear in its heirs as had the insistent repressiveness of the late 19th century. And then you've got like... But I don't, think weird... that's point, I don't think that's pointing fun at psychotherapy. 
I kind of think it, maybe not. I think that's kind of pointing funny. It's that that is a really. I remember that line. I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, and but I, he also thought, he's he's like riffing like like Haber's riffing at one point. My field was pioneered by Dement, uh, Asarinsky, Berger, Oswald, Hartman, and the rest. But the couch we get straight from Papa Freud. But we used it to sleep on, which he objected to. You know, this is just like like early on, and also the way that he's so arrogant, and he's just like, "I know what you're gonna say before you say it." You know, like collectively, uh, I'm like, I, I couldn't. I, he's I couldn't, definitely a bad therapist, but I, I wouldn't say it was like a. I I, I guess I don't know. I, I guess I'm just quibbling, but I, I didn't find it like satirical, and that it was like a funny depiction because it ends up being pretty horrifying. Like, like hey, hey, Haber. This book is funny in some parts, but but I find Haber like uh, very sinister and yeah. very like disturbing to me in a lot of ways. And I don't think it's because he's a therapist. I think it's because he's this kind of like utilitarian, ultra rationalist in a way. Yeah. They also talk about how at one time or another, 82% of the population gets this therapy. So it's like, I don't know. There, there was something kind of like over the top about it, right? That was definitely like a, a, some sort of a satire, I guess. But I, I mean, just like the interactions between Haber and or like on the on the couch and stuff, you know, I didn't find like uh, a straight up satire in that. I didn't find it funny. I found it more disturbing and kind of kind of scary. Like, I, I guess I didn't mean satire in the sense of like, yeah, this is a funny, wacky thing. More more in the sense like, is this a critique, I guess, of, of psychotherapy? Well, I'm glad you admitted you're wrong, Kevin. <laughs> But Haber, just like or I find like your perception of him completely changes because the first time you meet him, he just seems like, again, like another obnoxious, like the villain in the in the sci-fi story. But I don't really think he's a villain. And um, Earth, my girl Earth, doesn't describe him as a villain either. Like she in the same interview we watched, she says she never writes a villain. Yeah. Although, I mean, he's got he's got like good motivations, although he does murder get rid of six billion people including his own family and then he just like drinks whiskey and it's like to a better world so like, <laughs> yeah, he's, like he, he's, kind he of, thinks, he's kind of a psychopath but yeah but he thinks he's doing good right like yeah he, he, yeah he, he thinks he every time he kind of seems to convince himself that like the greater good won in a way even like the i love the part where they're all great because when he he decides to eradicate racism yeah, yeah. And then, they, you know, everyone's great. And there's also, it's not really like said, but I kind of read it as like also all food is bad because there's no more cultures. <laughs> Did you guys get that? Like, I don't know. I think Or is at the restaurant and he's just eating like a bland meal. Um, I, I, I agree with you, Roxanne. Like it is, he is like, and I, I the interview I saw, she, she, Ursula says that Haber's a good, a good guy. Like he's a good guy. And I think in some sense he is like, he's very well-meaning. And, and that's a great example of like, he sees a problem. And he just like breaks it down to like what he thinks are it's like fundamental concepts. Like racism is a divisive uh, force in the world. You have black people and white people and there's some conflict there. What if they were all just gray? Then problem solved, right? And it's like, no, it's more complicated than that, obviously, right? And also he removes, um, you know, difference in the world. And it's like, things are bland and boring. Like literally Heather that cannot exist in this world in, in the first instance of it because she has biracial parents. And like, or is really upset about this because he finds her such like an attractive dynamic person, right? And she is. And like, but that's, that's a great uh, example of like him just thinking like, the you know, this is just a blunt uh, brute force uh, solution to like a really complicated problem and, well, it, and, he also, and it's he also doesn't that's not what he wanted to happen like these keep things happening he keeps getting pissed off at or and being like you fucked it up yeah but he doesn't really like he doesn't because it's kind of like his 
because of his doing. Like, I don't think he really admits that it's bad. He kind of twists it that it's for the better. Because when, when Orr confronts him near the end of like, you know, everything that's happened, I don't know. I don't have the quote. Maybe. Well, in the gray, the gray thing, though, he was proud about that one. He said we ended racism. He was specifically proud about that one. Like Haber was very excited about that. But you're right that the other, like the, specifically the alien one, he's like, or <laughs> yeah. you idiot. Like that was dumb. But and then Orr is like, what did you expect to happen? You know? I loved all the aliens living on Earth parts. What, is, oh. what are they called again, John? The all you uh, wrote this down. The, uh, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. The Alderbaranians. Alder- yeah, yeah. And My that's fa- a star. What? I looked it up on Wikipedia this time so I wouldn't uh, fuck up any more, uh, you know, astrological stuff <laughs> or astronomical. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're and like George Orr is kind of famous to them because he he like has this power that that they have a word for but they can't explain what the word means. Also, he's kind yeah. of like their god. He created them. Well, that's what, see, this is what's interesting. So they make some references later in the novel to the fact that, like, increasingly, all of the world, all of the important stuff happening in the world is centered on Portland. You know, because it's just like, there's like these two guys who are kind of creating everything and Portland becomes of like, kind of ends up having this massive outsized importance in like world and 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 intergalactic affairs. But I love that. I love that she chose Portland. She lived in Portland, I think, like her whole life. So... I, I mean, I love that she chose like you know a second city, if you will, and like it becomes so important in like this book. I I thought it was because uh, Orr and Haber were like like dreams are ultimately self centered, and yeah. they were like building themselves up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but also, I think Roxanne, you're right though. Like the descriptions of Portland were like really detailed and like clearly very specific to someone who lived there and like loved it and i, I you know i looked it up on wikipedia of course and she's like you know she, she like you said that's like her like uh you know second home like you know she grew up in berkeley right but she loves the west coast she loves portland well she lived in portland like most of her life yeah she went yeah she studied in france married a french guy and moved back to portland um but the aliens yeah i love that scene the first scene where he like befriends the alien in this old like antique shop basically which again feels like a very Philip K. Dick scene. Philip K. Dick's always got antiques and nostalgia and stuff, and like weird Americana stuff. And this was like exactly the scene where the, he he meets this alien who kind of helps him out, gives him a Beatles record. Yeah, gives him a Beatles yeah. record with a little help from my friends. Yeah, I, I also love everything related to the aliens. That the fact that they're wearing like suits that are make them look like sea turtles, but they are like... sea turtles. They're space sea turtles in space suits. They're fucking amazing. Like <laughs> Yeah, but like... the way we the way it's described, it's like he, he thinks that it that like they're inside the suit, but they are they actually sea turtles. You never see them, but they're described as having like flippers. I just imagine them as described yeah. like, I don't know what they are. You never see them. And they're also described as mm-hmm. being indestructible. And they're these like giant like I almost imagine them like you know like um those old like uh, deep sea diving uh, suits with the big like globe helmets and stuff, like the kind that if you ever play a video game Bioshock, like I just imagine them like looking like that, uh, like these like old deep sea divers, and they're just like immense and like slow moving, and they have these these these, uh, these flipper hands, and they speak in this sort of broken English because it's like translated. I, I imagine our, our our boy PKD must have loved this. And they work at your local antique store. And doesn't isn't there one that's selling hot dogs or something? And then so when- at the hot dog thing, Bill Moyer said, "Aren't they selling hot dogs?" And I was like, "That's funny. I don't remember that." And I searched in my Kindle version, and I cannot find any reference to hot dogs at all. Did he um, just invent that? I don't know. Maybe it's in the movie. Um, but um, but they are described. They are selling like tchotchkes in like antique stores, and. I want to talk. I want to talk sort of about the progression of this, but at the end, they're described as good managers and extraordinary salesmen, and yeah. <laughs> and they're also they're good managers because um, 
we'll talk about this later because I want to talk about the end. Uh, the end, the end world, the end world that we end up with because it's very interesting. Yeah. I want to come back to the aliens being good managers because I, I think it's really funny. But I, I just love that description that they're good managers and extraordinary salesmen because how the fuck are these guys extraordinary salesmen? They can barely communicate. They communicate through like aphorisms, like they're quoting like Shakespeare, they're quoting Beatles and stuff like that. But like, I'll believe it, you know. Like that's 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 fine. Like that, I want to live in that world, you know. I want to live in that world where these giant space sea turtle dudes are selling me like tchotchkes and like bullshit antiques like that sounds lovely i think they're like very wise and intuitive i think that might be why they're really good managers and salespeople. sure yeah like doesn't he say something like he's when he's working for one of the aliens it's like i don't really have to show up to work it's just like as long as the work is done my boss is fine with it and i do most of it in my head in the morning yeah that's <laughs> what like, i want to talk about they're perfect that's managers, the job i right? want yeah, the job yeah they're perfect managers they're not like core hours we got to be active from this time they're like they're like no no if the work is done and also she describes them as being uh, amenable to government aid and regulations like if the government's like oh you should we need these regulations they're like yeah that sounds great let's do it they're like the perfect capitalists right although the, the hours <laughs> thing is funny because that that because he's actually working in like a retail store and he just leaves. Like it's not like he's like at a desk job. Yeah, but it's fine because the alien, the Aldebaranian, is privileging the worker over like the effect. Like he he care. It almost seems like the Aldebaranian cares about Orr's well being. Anyways, well, one second. Okay, so let's let's let's, let's go back a little bit. So okay. o o Haber is using Orr to solve the world's problems. It's kind of complicated whether or not Haber is bad. I think we could argue about it, and I'd like to argue about it. Like a bad person, but. Ultimately, Orr's kind of stance is is puzzling in that he, at the moment, he's described as like gaining like a strength, like there's sort of a strength about Orr, even though everyone sort of calls him like a wussy. And 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 then he he abdicates this power, like willingly. He always thought it was like a sin to change reality at all, for like good or bad. And he sort of submits to Haber because at least it's controlled, so do like less damage. And then he he lets Haber. Uh, Haber is hypnotizing him, right, to influence his dreams. He lets Haber like implant an effective dream where basically or dreams away his own powers. It's almost like a like catch twenty two kind of thing, right? But in doing so, Haber gains his powers, and Orr is like totally fine with it. Like he's totally fine with giving Haber the dream powers and giving up his own. And in fact, he almost gets he gets peace. Like he's described as being like very peaceful about it. I don't know. What do you guys make of that? Well, I think he was. He was. I, there, there's, there's, there's definitely sections. I don't remember exactly uh, uh, if he's ready to give it up, but there are definitely sections where like he doesn't want Haber to have that power. And, like, but he ultimately, knows that it's he, go he comes to the conclusion that it's fine. Like he's fine with it. Yeah. He I, I think just, he wanted to get get rid of it the whole time. Well, how he wanted to get rid of it, but it's not. It's not. It's not like it transfers from him to Haber. It's like Haber has been building up his machine and, and studying his brainwaves and stuff so that he could take it over. And when he's ready to take it over, then he's like, I don't need you anymore. So now you could have, you but, can end your own dreaming thing because I'm going to take over the effective dreaming. But Orr or is upset that Haber is using Orr's power to change the world in some ways that Orr thinks is frivolous. He agrees yeah. with some of the things he's trying to do. He does say that Haber's trying to make the world better, but he talks about how it's like, it's almost like a, like that sort of cliche, you know, absolute power starts to corrupt. Mm -hmm. And he has a problem with that. And it upsets him. But he's not upset with the idea of Haber gaining the power himself and or losing the power. He almost he almost prefers that. And I have a theory about it. And also, like, or or doesn't want his power to change the world. He doesn't want to change the world. And I think when we're reading it, we're like, he thinks this power is wrong. Like, it shouldn't exist. But I think he's 
actually what's upset about is it upset about him having to control the world. Like he doesn't want to do it. Also in this world, if someone else has the power, he won't even know what's happening. He exactly. Even... I think that's the thing is exactly it. Is it is exactly like he doesn't want to make the decision for other people. He doesn't want to himself have to steal other people's freedoms like away from them. And they're like ultimate freedom of like choosing their own reality. Like he doesn't want to make those decisions because he knows that he cannot see all the effects that they might have. Like it's beyond him. Like he understands the like the lathe of heaven, like the limits of his understanding is that he cannot fucking understand all the consequences of like trying to make like a peaceful world and create these aliens. Like he cannot know that. And he knows that he can't know that. So he would rather do nothing and just like exist. Like be the jellyfish floating through the ocean. Like I think that's it. Whereas Haber, who like is like possessed with this like this, you know, the 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 the, the, the ends justify the means, but then like Haber is all means, right? He he immediately fucks it all up and has like this like effective nightmare. And I think Orr is fine with it because he knows that like if Orr isn't having the effective dreams, he won't even know what Haber's doing. He'll just live, right? And he's yeah. like fine with that. He understands that there's like a limit to the power he should have. I think. I, th I think that's like the it, you know, like something like that. Yeah, or is like whatever happens happens. So he doesn't like that his dreams, like, kind of force things to happen because he just wants to, like, let live. Yeah, the dude abides. Like the dude yeah, abides, yeah. right? Yeah. But that's like a that's like a revelation he has after meeting the alien at the antique shop, right? He's like, listen to this Beatles record, you know, and he like goes back to his. The rooming house and hangs out with his, with his like weird landlord listening to this Beatles record and I think he's just like life is just about this I thought he was like that throughout the book but the aliens are the first ones to kind of like validate how he feels about life through their like kind of broken English like yeah. or maybe that's how he interprets what they're saying which like I'm trying to find this one quote that I really love what the alien says something about like self is universe and like about the mist you guys know <laughs> I'm trying <laughs> anyway I'll find it but like uh I I feel like the aliens are just there to finally be like it's okay to think and live this way so that's when he finally just like accepts it where I, but I think he's like that throughout the whole book he's just kind of like dealing with Haber who's forcing him to use his dreams for something or whatever or making him feel like it's not right to be this way i agree i found the alien quote i really liked it's if desired speech is silver silence is gold self is universe please forgive interruption crossing and mist <laughs> please forgive interruption it's like a shitty chat gpt um <laughs> and like crossing and mist comes back later and i was like what does that mean is it like brb yeah <laughs> This means like I think it's just like a, it's like a basically like a like a like a like a, like a loading screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crossing and mist. Maybe crossing and mist is like um, everything is fleeting. Mm. I thought it was more like their way of saying like see you later. <laughs> <laughs> maybe like, it could be. Maybe too. that's me simplifying. I, I, who knows the, what these uh, aliens are talking? About. The the, yeah. the the world that happens after uh, Haber has this yeah. like effective nightmare, and yeah. you have all the realities sort of shattered onto one. I, I thought it was that. very interesting that Orr almost seems to prefer that reality. And I kind of, I thought like also like the sort of like live and let live, like dude abides kind of like thing is like, yeah, like the world, the world goes on. Yeah. So, so he basically, he interrupts a Haber mid dream because Haber is like, now he can effective dream and he has this, it goes obviously not at all how he wants it to go. And it's the described world as an effective be, nightmare. Yes. Yeah, world starts to be destroyed. But, but 
or knows what's going on and he interrupts him halfway through. So the world's like split and it's so jarring that that this is the that people realize something happened. Unlike Ors where they, they didn't realize that anything had happened. There's just like everyone knows something happened but they don't know what. I think they call it the break, is that what they call it? Or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, they call it the break, yeah. Yeah. But I love this like this world afterwards where it's like Ors taking a boat as transit and he talks about how like Reed University has a subway station but no subways. <laughs> There's just like these weird kind of half-formed parts of the world left over that don't make any sense. Yeah, and then everyone has alien managers who are the perfect managers who give you absolute freedom. The scene where he runs into Heather at the store at the end was so good. It's this like awkward X scene, right? Where he's like, he runs into her at the store and they, there was like a previous reality where they were like lovers, but that reality doesn't isn't part of this reality. And he just, like, doesn't remember what memories or realities they share. He, like, he doesn't really know which worlds that they've lived in together. Oh, I thought it was very hopeful, though. There's, like, very flirty and there's kind of, like, the hints of, like, a romance. Like, I, I don't know. I kind of was like, ooh, they're meant to be. It's so nice. Yeah. But I you could read it that way. But I, I just read it this ultimate, like, kind of weird run-in with an ex where you're just like, what, what, what lives do, you know, you've, you've yeah, got like these past lives together that are kind of fractured. But at the same time, it's like the return of like the original Heather, the bold kind of fierce woman that he really liked. Because when she did, when he did like, she disappeared, right? When they were all gray and there was no more racism. But then she comes back as like his wife, but she's this kind of meek, meek version of herself that's like really scared of Dr. Haber. So then yeah. now I feel like at the end when she comes back, she's like the original. Yeah. And then at the end she says... I like things. <laughs> that's a quote. <laughs> Page 183. Hey, that's more that's more like intelligent dialogue than PKD uh, ever gave a woman. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> okay, she likes things, but what are her breasts doing? Are they smiling? <laughs> yeah. How many of them are there? Are they perfect spheres? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if she really likes things, if her breasts don't also like things. Do you want to give our final opinions here? Roxanne, what do you think? I think you guys should go first because I feel like I have a, like I'm kind of a fan of Earth. This is your first time reading her, Kevin, no? Yeah, it is. So you go. I found this book very enjoyable. I haven't read a lot of sci-fi in my life, honestly. Like I've read some of the kind of classic stuff, but I haven't gotten in in too deep um, before the Philip K. Dick uh, deep dive that we went on. But yeah, some of the same things I like about him, I liked about this. Like it is very kind of rooted in human drama and human relationships and like it's rooted in reality, but there are these cool concepts kind of going on almost in the background. I like that a lot. Uh, I just like that she's a little playful with language, that the prose is a little more fluid than the, the PKD that we're used to. If there's one fault in this book, at times I found the exposition to be a bit much. When like a world shifts and then like Haber has to like tell you for two pages about what the what the old world was and what the new world was. There was like several instances of that. Um, but I mean, it was fine. It worked. Uh, I like this book and I want to read more of her books. I, I, I absolutely adore this book. I love it. I think it's actually my favorite Ursula K. Le Guin book now. Um, I've read a few. I've read uh, like Ursi, Left Hand of Darkness, Dispossessed. Um, I kind of want to reread Left Hand of Darkness and Dispossessed because those are usually everyone's like two favorite uh, Ursula K. Le Guin sci-fi books at least. 
Um, I I I, lo- I love this book. I really loved it. Um, I did. I was not bothered by the exposition. But you know what I, I mean, thought the prose right? is incredible. I do, and I disagree in my personal thing. I'll, I'll get to it. But um, I I love I love the prose in this books, and I'm never really sure what speculative fiction means, like as a term. But I think this is exactly what I want. Mm. Like how it goes through several versions of dystopias and utopias, like the overpopulation one, the uh, sort of alien invasion, making peace, like the anti It takes all these like these like propositions and then sort of like goes through them and actually what you, you kind of find boring like exposition. I, I loved it. I loved all the details of like the, the geopolitical parts and everything where she's talking about all the different like alliances with the different planets and one version of Earth were really great. Um, and I, I love the shifting descriptions of people, like how you never really know what to think about or, and ultimately really, I think she was saying is you have to judge his actions for yourself because when you're reading the way he's described the other eyes of other people, he's described almost as like, oh, like a wussy or like being really strong. And ultimately you have to make your decision because it's kind of unclear if his decision was good or not. It's really up to you. And also just like the complicated morality of Haber, I thought was like really interesting. And also just like as a case study of like, the sort of dangers of this like utilitarianism kind of like idea, you know, like the greatest good for the greatest all is like kind of myopic in some ways. And also I thought, I thought the prose is incredible. It was really funny. Some really great like sentences. If this was really like kind of like a homage to Dick, then like, I think, I think it was like an amazing one. And she sort of gets all the parts that like I like about like Philip K. Dick as well. Um, except that like prosaically, she's probably a better writer, I guess, in some ways. Um, yeah, I, re- I really, I really adore this book. Like I really love it. Um, it was just, just great, and it's some like lovely descriptions, like a Haber with his like giant head and his big beard. I mean, like I've seen this guy, you know, like I know him. Um, it's like a ten out of ten book for me, like, flawless. But maybe I'm just excited right now. <laughs> um, the only thing I've been reading for the last few months is Philip K. Dick, which you know I also like a lot. But like, it, it's it's kind of, I don't know, kind of reminded me of some prosaically more interesting mm. and a sort of sentence level books that I haven't you know been reading as much lately great book i also really loved it actually at first not to bring up goodreads but at first i put put four stars and then it's the type of book that the more i thought about it the more i like loved it because i i at the beginning i thought maybe until i was like midway or really got into it that i was thinking i wasn't enjoying it as much as her other books that i all loved like earthsea left hand of darkness but this book, the more I thought about it, yeah, the more I also loved it. I just think she's one of these writers that is kind of beyond genre. And she's written a lot like defending sci-fi and fantasy genres. But she, I feel like she's a writer that anyone should give a chance. Like, because there's so many parts in this book that are just beautiful that aren't even, well, they are related to the story, but are just beautiful statements on like the characters or humanity or the world, you know, that's just, I feel like anyone who just appreciates literature wants to learn anything should read her. Even when she has an offside joke about making love, like how it's like something you have to like make. And it's like, she's being cheesy deliberately. It was, it was so well done. It was just like a nice. Yeah. Love is made like bread. Like even that I really enjoyed. But she's being, but she's being consciously lame and sincere in a way that like, it's just like, it's like, yes, I also feel the same way. That was nice. (laughs) So you asked what we would do if we had effective dreaming, a better question. Would you want to have effective dreaming? Oh, fuck. Yeah. You would? It seems like it would be a nightmare. Like, I think I would just be a mess. Like, It'd be, or... uh, okay, first of all, there's a lot of things. I would dream away this podcast and make the world a much better place. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't. No yeah. way. I would dream of, like, 
whales coming to pick me up and like they would have little saddles for me and like they could give me lifts to like the uk my effective nightmare would be if whales kidnapped me and forced me to go to the uk <laughs> <laughs> okay so next week we're gonna watch the uh, movie version of this made for pbs in 480p on youtube i couldn't can you guys find a higher definition version no and there's a, a story behind that that was the Rhetorizer. Music and editing by Kevin Sexton. Roxanne is standing at the black gate, regretting her choices. John is waiting for the subway. But in this world, there is no subway. You can email us at ashowaboutbooks at gmail.com. We will do another podcast in two weeks. And then another. And then, perhaps, another. 